welcome to episode 34 of Literary Disco, Thunderbird. Today's episode in two parts, we will begin with a bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I find something on our bookshelves to discuss, and then we will pop open Dorothea Lasky's latest collection of poetry titled Thunderbird. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Good afternoon, Hi. sir. So before we uh, dive into our revisit, I wanted to bring up the Finnegan's Wake and Bake, <laughs> which is now going to be shortened to just Finnegan's Wake. Um, uh, I, we don't want to encourage drug no. use among our listeners. No, absolutely not. No, that'd be craziness. Terrible. So the concept behind Finnegan's Wake Up Wait, Finnegan's Wake Up was uh, to read James Joyce's incredibly difficult novel, Finnegan's Wake, uh, which none of us have read. And um, I brought up on a bookshelf revisit a couple of episodes ago. And uh, was it Julia that came or was it Todd I, that came up with the I idea? I believe of... I came up with the greatest idea of my entire life. Finnegan's Wake I and Bake. I said wake up. Todd said wake, wake and, and bake. bake. Yes. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. But the idea was to read only two pages of Finnegan's Wake every day and see how long you could survive. <laughs> <laughs> no, to get through the whole book. It's not like yeah, you're in a fucking only, prison It would camp. only take about a year. But anyway, so a couple of you have responded on our Goodreads page that you would actually want to do this. And so I reached out to a James Joyce scholar. I took a Joyce class uh, at Columbia uh, with an amazing, amazing professor named Michael Seidel. And I've reached out to him and he re responded with a really nice long email. And I'm going to be talking to him. Hopefully I'll get him to come onto the show and maybe give an introduction uh, for everybody, but I think I'll start a blog page about this and update it. But the goal right now is to start on August 1st, August 1st. And I've actually upped it to five pages a day so we can get through it faster. So if you want to read along, there are, there's really only one edition of Finnegan's Wake. They all have the same pages. Um, even if it's the Viking edition or the Penguin edition. All right. I have also based on Professor Seidel's recommendation, purchased William York Tyndall's A Reader's Guide to Finnegan's Wake and Annotations of Finnegan's Wake by Roland McHugh, uh, the God. third edition. Christ. So these are two reading guides that I'm also going to, I'm probably not going to read them religiously, but in case we have any questions or anything comes up, I think they'll be helpful to have along. So if you want to do that too, but uh, I think this will be really fun. And based on what my professor said, it might actually be a perfect way to read this book because he makes it sound like there is really no right or wrong way to read Finnegan's Wake. There's just... A lot of conflicting, confusing, crazy ideas, six different languages. Um, are, you, are you sure as... you don't want to keep in the bake part? Because the more you talk about <laughs> it, the more it seems like the bake part really well, is the fundamental aspect of reading this book that will make it usable. Uh, you know, he did describe it as like sitting in an Irish pub with about 15 drunk people, uh, but also encompassing the entire history of the world and <laughs> literature. And it's going to be a really interesting experience. I think that. Um, it's going to be a challenge for me just because I'm one of those readers, as I'm sure a lot of people are, that when you encounter something difficult or when you encounter a, a difficult passage or something you don't understand, you think of it as a puzzle that you have to solve. Yeah. And, and I think that we can't really approach it that way. It's going to be more like a conversation between those of us who are reading the book to just contribute. And that's why I'd like to start a separate blog, uh, probably separate from the Literary Disco blog, where we can all post our ideas and impressions as they come to us. And like I said, there's no right or wrong. I'm probably not going to I'm not going to post every day, maybe once uh, every couple of weeks. Can, can we, we see how it goes? do it within Goodreads. 
That's yeah. where you should do it. Here, oh, here's, do it on yeah. Good here's something I'm yeah. going to advise you of, Ryder, and you can you can decide whether or not you want to do this or not, is don't have this be part of your uh, honeymoon. So Ryder's getting married no, pretty soon. <laughs> you Are you committed or aren't you? I have to commit to this. Five pages a day, I, August 1st. I don't want to also be at your wedding and, and see you sort of waking up and sitting outside reading... <laughs> Dude, I gotta get three more fucking pages before I can get this wedding. What the hell? I don't think, I mean, as if we take the pressure off of like needing to know everything that's happening, and we're all sharing in this, so we can all post our impressions, and you know, and that's what's kind of cool about it. I think that a cyber community of readers is actually kind of a cool way to approach this. Uh, And like I said, I'll I'll get some more information. I'm gonna be talking to my professor tomorrow on the phone, and and like I said, I'll hopefully be able to record a segment, an introduction that he can give us to the text. Because, I mean, Ulysses is. Is, I, I mean, I've read all everything else that Joyce wrote, and there is more of a puzzle quality to Ulysses, uh, explicitly so. Like it's structured, it's very well structured, and even though it's it's confusing, there's there's usually an answer to why things are there, and you can endlessly pick it apart. But I don't think that's true of Finnegan's Wake. I think Finnegan's Wake is much more experiential and open to interpretation. So I think this is going to be really fun, and I think it, there's no pressure, you know. Um, so yeah. anybody who wants to join in. Get a copy of Finnegan's Wake. Start reading on August 1st. We'll be doing five pages a day, and it should be really fun. And then check up on the Goodreads page. I'll post more information there. And Wilmer, I think we should... I just bought my book, so let's see how committed I can stay. But uh, I think we'll remind people when they should be around about page 100 or whatever. I think that's right. the best way to go. My fall behind right. or fall out, be able just to as book if ahead. you were dieting and you ate a cupcake for breakfast, then you may have to slow down for the rest of the day. So might you have to do your own self-pacing and regulating. I feel like you guys have taken a lot of the fun out of it by taking the narcotic aspect out of it. But I understand you're all about literature. Our live show is all set. Yeah! Yeah. So if you live anywhere where you can hear this uh, on your speakers or in your head or wherever it is that you listen to this, um, our first live show is going to be... In your soul. (laughs) August 22nd at 7 p.m at Barnes & Noble at The Grove in Los Angeles. And we already have our guest author in line. It's the lovely and talented Ivy Pachoda, author of the latest book, Visitation Street, which I have read. I don't think you guys have read it yet, and I absolutely fucking loved it. It's a great book. It's her second novel, um, and she has been getting glowing reviews, including one from your guys' favorite writer, Jillian Gillian, Jillian Gillian? Gillian Flynn. Gillian Flynn in in O Magazine called... uh, Ivy's book, uh, A Sensation, or The Greatest Thing Since Finnegan's Wake, or something like that. Oh, cool. <laughs> but we're going to do everything that we do on the show, but we're going to do it live, and you guys are going to be able to ask us questions and uh, and come up and touch us. Well, touch Julia. I don't I don't want to be touched, and Ryder doesn't yeah, want to be you touched. Can touch you me, can guys. touch Julia. It's cool. But there'll I'm be games. We'll have a book that Ivy will select for us to read and, uh, and talk about. Hopefully it's something that we hate. I think when we hate a book, it's really much more fun. And if you need a place to stay, um, I think Ryder's Guest Room sleeps what 20 25 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. bring oh, a yeah. sleeping bag yeah. come on down yeah just let us know in adv- i mean don't i mean why not yeah don't even let us know in advance just follow us home afterwards that would be fun maybe it'll be like woodstock you oh know? that'd be like, awesome maybe we'll just start a mass wave of dirty hippies mm-hmm. and everybody will come and i love dirty Everyone's hippies gonna touch your first editions when i die i'm going to be a dirty hippie as you guys will all learn about shortly Ooh. when we read thunderbird i love weird ass hippies i do love weird ass hippies that was an inside joke that everyone will get later <laughs> after we discuss the poetry book we're about to discuss that's a pre-inside joke yes. you guys know a, the joke before the very content. weird Great. All right, so for my bookshelf revisit, I was going to talk about the fact that this weekend I had my book club and I was incredibly far behind on my reading, which means I read 
the Jeffrey Eugenides novel Middlesex in one day. <laughs> That's and you did not. It's like oh fifteen hundred pages. That, I did. And oh, and I you're saying don't it. read Finnegan's Wake with drugs? Come on. <laughs> There's no way you read Middlesex this, uh, in one day. I did. I did. I, I, I'll admit I was about 80 pages in when the day started. Um, so Saturday was Saturday night was my book club. I woke up on Saturday and had only had only made it about 80 pages through before that and finished the book in time for my 8 p.m. book club. Jesus. And uh, I, you know, I read very fast when I want to. I read fast in general. But so obviously I, I, I wasn't like by the by the last 200 pages, I really was reading super fast in order to make it. I got to my book club, sat down on the couch and read the last 30 pages there. Um, and I have to say, I really uh, did not love the book. And, you know, I know that it's unfair to have crammed like this. But um, this is one of those books that I've been, you know, always told I would love and that everybody seems to love. And I, I was looking forward to it. Um I just really fell behind because of all the other stuff I've been reading, <laughs> yeah, like for this podcast. Oh, but, so you're um, blaming us? Now, oh, yeah, now well, we're blaming you for my book club. Uh, excuse me, Todd and I read Middlesex at least ten years. Yeah, ago. at least. I know. I know you guys were you guys were on the Middlesex wave. Did when you it was read Virgin Suicides, Ryder? No, I didn't read Virgin Suicides. I'd never read anything but Jeffrey Eugenity. So this was a real, and he's an astounding author. I mean, he is brilliant. He's clearly operating on like so many levels at once. I didn't like the book. I feel like it was maybe six different books and I liked maybe two of them. But what was interesting to me about it, what I kind of wanted to talk about was it, I kept being reminded of something. I couldn't figure out what it was. And then it hit me. It reminded me a lot, oddly, of Cavalier and Clay or The Adventures of oh. Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shaban. And then I realized that they both came out around the same time yeah, they and did. Yes. they both won the Pulitzer. Yes. And so I realized that this was kind of a, a pattern, and I'm wondering, and I actually haven't looked this up, but I'm wondering what you guys think about that comparison, because they both they both sort of have a, a, a pulpy idea at their center, or a sexy idea at the center. In Cavalier and Clay, it's the idea that this is a, a comic book, you know, a book about comic books, or the creation of a superhero. And in Middlesex, it's this hermaphrodite at the center of the book. You know, this question of, uh, you know, it's going to be a coming-of-age story about a hermaphrodite, and what does that mean, and what is that like? And then both of them are huge epic stories, immigration stories uh, about Europeans coming to America, multi-generational stories. They span 10 different characters. And I was I was surprised by that by Middlesex because I, I didn't know anything about the book other than that it was about somebody who was born sort of mid-gender or both genders. And so I really didn't like that about Middlesex. I wish it had just focused on one aspect or the other and it felt like so much of what was cool about Middlesex was the ambition. And then on the sort of sentence level, it was incredibly successful. It was really well written. Yeah. But overall, it was a tonal mess to me. It was like, and sometimes it was like a, a an over the top fantastical comedy. Other times it was like Forrest Gump, where you it was hear... like huge historical events and this family just happened to be there. And it felt like he was shoehorning our characters into big historical events. Um, and so there were lots of problems with it. And and I wonder, because I haven't read Cavalier and Clay since 2003 or whenever it came out. And, and so I'm wondering if, if, if you what you guys think of that comparison. And, I think it's and, I think it's not a I, I think it both books are obviously huge, sprawling novels. The, right. Here's the interesting thing about Middlesex. Um, Jeffrey Eugenies actually came out and spoke out here in the desert um, shortly after Middlesex came out. Um, and he was talking about the writing of Middlesex. Actually, no, I'm sorry. It was many years after Middlesex came out because it was like 2007. 
And he was saying how difficult it was to maintain voice because he wrote that book over the course of 10 years. And so he was one writer on page one and a different writer on page 200 and a different writer on page 700. That's what I felt. And a different writer on page 1,000 or whatever. So that that makes some sense. I think, I I don't know, I I love both those books. I I love Cavalier and Clay. I absolutely love Cavalier and Clay. I think it's not a bad description. I think... I think the ambition of Middlesex is more because it's also a classical story. You know, you don't mm-hmm. write a, a, a novel about a hermaphrodite, and of course, it goes through the history of the family and whatnot, um, without it also being about you know the historical tropes of being a hermaphrodite. So I think there, there's that there's that something larger than just being about comic book writers, and also about immigration, Nazi Germany, and all that stuff too. But I, I think you it deserves a slow, close read. It, Middlesex is not a book you can just zip through. Um, yeah. I, I, I think you would appreciate it more if there was not a ticking clock. so long ago that I read it, but I remember the incest elements and feeling they were very classical. I remember loving them and feeling like it was Sound in the, like Sound in the Fury mixed with a classical scenario mixed with this very modern novel and actually the parts about the main hermaphrodite character are the parts i remember the least so i'm wondering if those were were so pulled out into this other voice that i just obliterated them from my memory mm. but i love the virgin suicides even more i, I, love I that book. the virgin suicides i think yeah. is the most remarkable use of the uh first person plural voice that i've read in Forever, maybe. I mean, other than, or perhaps along with Josh Ferris's Then We Came to the End, which was also up for the National Book Award a couple years ago, which is also in first-person plural. But that the community of boys retelling the story, I just absolutely love it. I absolutely love that book. My feeling about Middlesex is that it doesn't age well. And I'm curious if you guys were to reread it, how you would feel. Because when I, like, in in response to what you said, Julia, I actually, the the coming of age part of the novel, when the the narrator finally enters the novel as a character herself, himself, sorry, it becomes a much better book. And I was suddenly, I was suddenly, I had somebody I cared about, I had people I was rooting for, and it didn't feel show-offy anymore. Uh, Up until the, it's a, he's a virtuosic writer. And I think he was just, throwing everything into this book and 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 showing off all of his skills and all of his research and and I, I just wasn't impressed by that because I wasn't emotionally involved I, I, I yeah. or if I did get emotionally involved characters would would actually disappear like a big part of the the first two or 300 pages is the love story between Desdemona and Lefty the two character the brother and sister mm-hmm. that flee Greece and then after page 200 or so, we're led to believe that they just have this kind of crappy marriage and they don't really get along. And, and it's like they just disappear. And the emotional content of uh, the narrator's story doesn't rely on anything that was built before. None of the, the Desdemona lefty stuff has any bearing on how I feel about him, her coming of age in the, the, the 1970s. Mm. Right. Every year I feel like, well, not every year anymore, I think I've gotten better and better about picking books and less interested in keeping up with current books, which is interesting because I feel like you guys do a much better job of that than I do. But I feel like very often I'll read a book that is so popular in the moment and I like it and then I have like no memory of it. It just Mm -hmm. vanishes on the palette. So another one of those for me, like Cavalier and Clay, I read it, I loved it. 
would have a really hard time recounting any of it for you right now. Same with, um, did you guys read that book, Special Topics in Calamity Physics? Yes, by Marissa so Pessel. Yeah, or Pessel, whatever her name is. Yeah. yeah oh, I've she, never even heard of it. I completely missed that book. She's having another book about to come out, and I, I heard have about absolutely it on... no memory of that book, but I know that I read it because I, I, I remember when it came out, it was, yeah. like, it was like seven years ago or something, eight years ago. Well, when I brought this up to a friend this morning, he, he mentioned White Teeth, which I also never read. Oh, yeah. That was a hugely popular book, and mm-hmm. he said he put. He put Middlesex and White Teeth in the same category, and then he felt like hmm. these were books that, that somebody had read a lot of theories, a lot of like postmodern theory, and, and they were really mm-hmm. smart people who, who then wrote books out of having read all these theories. And, and I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, that kind of made sense to me about Middlesex. Like, he had done a lot of research and had a lot of big ideas and tried to cram them all into one huge epic book, and I just don't know why necessarily. Like, I'm not sure how much it needed it. Yeah, and I think for me, the through line between all the books that I'm thinking of is they were people who had a really great idea. There's a great idea at the center of all of these books, but it's like, I mean, I'm going to go back to the palate um, simile, you know, like you have no idea if you're drinking a good whiskey or a bad whiskey until five minutes later and what the taste is. So like it still tastes equally good at the same time because the idea of it is so good. Like the idea of the history, the family history of a hermaphrodite is so good. The idea of this comic book, superhero novel, um, Cavalier and Clay is so good, but the writing itself does not embed into your soul the way like stoner does, but there's no way that you would know that until years have passed. Right. Well, similarly to you, Ryder, um, I think, kind of, in a way, I also recently enjoyed, actually it was over two days, uh, an epic book that I had not read before. Um, and that was The Hobbit. <laughs> so <laughs> That's like, what you is it, like 100 pages? So Wendy like, and I... How did you not read The Hobbit? I never read it. Wendy wow. and I uh, oh went on vacation this last week. We just got back yesterday. And uh, we were in lovely Sedona. And so when we go on long road trips, whereas Julia and Ryder like to uh, read books to other people driving, I think that's weird. So instead I have an Englishman read books to me on my CD or whatever it is. So we downloaded The Hobbit to listen to on our drive to Sedona. So it's an 11-hour audiobook, and it takes, so it takes five hours each way to Sedona. So a couple things I did not know about The Hobbit that maybe you guys did know, and I wish you had told me well in advance – the profound the, there's the eagles the profound number of songs <laughs> that are sung oh, of course yeah. of course so if you're listening to the audiobook you can't skip oh, them oh my god, god that's awful Jesus oh yeah you have to skip Christ. them oh wait the lord of the rings are way crazier oh god like they the guy would be singing the songs and i would turn to wendy and i'd say D- is this information I'm going to need to know? Because I haven't been no. listening for the last seven minutes. So there's the, the profound number of songs. And then I started to get a little obsessive about the songs. I'd be like, how the fuck do these guys make up these songs that rhyme just on the spot, just like that? And, and Wendy was like, well, didn't you make up songs when you were a kid? I'm like, I'm, these are yeah. kids. These are warriors. These are dwarves. <laughs> I could do it. And it, it, it is for kids. You know? Right. But if you were a Celtic the... dwarf warrior, okay, <laughs> and many what would people you do have... with your tremendous intellect? Had you already seen the movie, Todd? No, I've movie? not seen the movie. And uh, I have saw the Lord of the Rings movies, um, but have not read the Lord of the Rings books. And um, they have a lot of songs in the Lord of the Rings books too, but they cut them out of the movie. They actually have some of the songs in the movie, just in the background. The yeah, they do. Uh, because they the Hobbit, they're songs. taking one tiny book and making it three damn. So, 
movies. So this yeah, one, when I got to the movie, I was like, oh, shit, the songs. They need oh. the songs so to pad in. They need to pad in the it. movie, what do they do, just get to Hobbiton or just get out they, of Hobbiton? No. How far do yeah, they go? Yeah, basic, basically, that's about it. No, they make it to, um, they do make it to They're the cave. Inside? So he's had, the yeah. first movie has ended, he's already had his first encounter with Gollum. Oh, with so, Gollum. Okay, so not Smaug's not the cave where Smaug is. Just opened. No. That's where we are in movie life. The the problem that I in, uh, encountered with the narrative is that uh, every couple pages he would say, "But later on, the eagles would fly with crests of gold around their head, given to them by the dwarves after their great work they did in the Battle of Five Armies." So, mm-hmm. so I was like, "Well, then why the fuck do I need to listen to this? <laughs> They're clearly going to win at the end." So there was that the foretelling of everything. The other thing that um, sort of bothered me is that look you're on a goddamn quest Bilbo you might miss a fucking meal okay you might no miss way. a fucking meal this is about meal. hobbits Todd Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit are all about food and walking Good that's the main God. point of them being written Todd wait I'm confused you had never read Lord of the Rings no, I just at all huh? just loved the movies yeah, I loved the and movies. I hated I the movies, movies and the books love the movies. okay but Julia have you read the books too I love the books and the movies. Oh, look at this. We're completely divided. All right. <laughs> the, the last thing that I want to, to mention, finally, is that I was a little upset that all of my favorite Lord of the Rings characters don't make any appearances except for Gandalf. And I no. was like... How did you not know this? Well, I mean, yeah, the, I knew... The, the Hobbit was written fault. first. I knew it and emotionally. The Hobbit is the only book that actually I could finish and enjoy. The other books are so bad. Dude. I, like, everything that you're saying that you didn't like about The Hobbit, it's like a million times <laughs> over yeah. in The Lord of the Rings. Do you know how many hungry hobbits there are? Yes. A lot more. Second breakfast. <laughs> so my last thing is this. is So the book is, is 10 hours and 47 minutes. However, we arrived back at our house... With 43 minutes left in the audiobook. <laughs> I'm feeling like I don't need to listen to those 43 minutes. I feel like I know it's going to. No? You do. Don't think you do. I could just. Like, I don't know. They win, right? Yeah. They win. Yeah, they win. <laughs> okay. Or, I mean, are they in the middle of the Battle of the Five Armies? The, 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 yeah, the, you know, the, the clouds have descended. Everyone's yeah, fighting. But they don't, I don't, if I remember correctly, Gandalf saves everybody from everything. Yeah. And it's like. And Gandalf is it makes so It's so stupid. Lot, Gandalf just shows up and he, like, and then like everything goes away or somebody I mean there's always somebody to come in and rescue it's, so like Bilbo never fights no. or does anything and this is my they're thing fine. also is Gandalf don't be a bitch just stay with them and exactly. fight or let the eagles fly them all the way there yeah, why, like, don't, why don't the eagles fly them to the mountain well that's the worst part about the movie dude that, that movie ends with them being dropped off on a hilltop by these giant eagles and they look off in the distance and they're like there it is and you're like well, then just keep going, Eagles. <laughs> come on, come back, Eagles. Eagles. Actually, Todd, if you can get a hold of the cartoon version of The I, Hobbit. I saw oh, the cartoon amazing. version of The Hobbit. I saw that it's as really, a kid. It's actually really good. And the music is really a, kind of nice and sweet. And it's it's cool. And yeah, so you I can saw watch that. the last I saw that. Those are by the people who did The Last Unicorn, which is... <laughs> yeah, the Rankin-Bass. Hey, let me ask you yeah. an important question about The Hobbit, the cartoon. Because as I was listening to this, I couldn't remember if it was the same thing. Is there a moment in The Hobbit cartoon where Bilbo, like, digs his hand through the dirt and finds water under the ground? Or is that in a different cartoon that I saw? I think that's in a different cartoon. I don't think we can go into your subconscious like that. But I can sing the opening theme song. What is it? Let's hear it. Greatest oh, no, no, God. Jesus Christ. No, no. To be had. <laughs> I can do The Last Unicorn. Uh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> By America. The band. 
When the last oh, God. flies over the yes! last I remember that. dusty mountain. Now we'll skip to oh, the best great. part. I'm alive. I'm alive. Yes. Did. And then do you remember? And the Red Bull was close behind them. Do you remember the whole prophecy of the little, the little flying guy? Todd? You want to contribute? I, I did not see The Last Unicorn. <laughs> oh, my God. I think when The Last Unicorn it's came really out, good. I was already in the period of my life where I was having sex. Here's one more recommendation for our listeners. Uh, the Lemmy Winks episode of South Park, which is an excellent episode if you like South Park, um, is based, it's a parody of these movies. I didn't know that. It's about a journal that goes, a gerbil that goes on a journey through an ass. <laughs> okay, my turn. That was a, talk about a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so mine is also related to, you know, wow, we have three really good revisits this time, guys. So I think you guys probably heard this by now, but uh, over the last couple days, J.K. Rowling has been revealed as the person behind a pseudonym of a best-selling crime novel. Yes. So she is, I feel really bad for her because it was her, I think her first book that we know that she put out under a pseudonym and she was found out almost <laughs> immediately by the public and no the book's been out um, for quite a while hasn't it? like six well, no, months yeah the book's been out but i mean she hasn't done a whole line mm. like you know when stephen king had the richard bachman name he put out several books right before people figured it out um and it's a really interesting story and people are kind of hating on her and the articles and comments that i've seen of like oh didn't she have enough money and they think she outed herself or whatever. But it all brought me back to this book that I think I haven't talked about it yet on this podcast, but one of my favorite books I read last year was Gnome de Plume by Carmela Chiraro. I think you did mention this once before about sort of the history of, of pen names. Yeah, so I'll just uh, review it really quick in, in case, you know, I think I didn't revisit, I think I just mentioned it. Um, but yeah, it's called The Secret History of Pseudonyms, and it goes through... Um, all these great authors that you guys know and the various reasons that they use pseudonyms. So, for example, O. Henry committed tax fraud or tax evasion or something like that. So he had to go under a pseudonym so that people wouldn't connect him with his amoral self. And Patricia Highsmith was a really terrible person, so she, nobody <laughs> liked her in literary circles. So she had to put out oh, things God. under a pseudonym. Um, and it's just... Um, you know, we don't have to talk about it a lot since we've already talked for a while, and I've talked about it before, but um, I I immediately thought of of Carmela, the author, when I heard about J.K. Rowling, because I hope that this new interest in pseudonyms will drive people back to her book, because she really goes through the cultural, social, and socioeconomic reasons that people would use a pseudonym. Obviously, J.K. Rowling does not have a socioeconomic reason See, using a pseudonym. I think J.K. Rowling, you know, I totally understand why she did it. You know, she... Yeah. But this is a completely different kind of book. It's a procedural crime novel. And so, you know, it, it made perfect sense to me that she had written under a pen name. Um, and, I, you know, I think there's a lot of writers that write under pen names, obviously, that we never know about. Um, the, I mean, and even someone like Nora Roberts, who has 8,000 open pen names, but so she can write, you know, her her crime novels under uh, J.D. Robb or whatever it is um, so that people know, oh, this is not the romance, this is the crime line. I think it's there's there's something really interesting about that. Um, yeah. But to keep it hidden, you know, why, why, as the kids say, and as Julia said, hate on her <laughs> for... <laughs> why hate on her? <laughs> why, for doing whatever the fuck she wants, you know? she's She can do whatever the fuck she wants. She's earned the right to do whatever the fuck she wants, you know? And I, I just feel fine. Pretty heartwarming that she just 
really wants to write. Mm -hmm. She has certain kinds of books that she wants to try her hand at. And the reason that she was found out was that people said it was too good for a first-time novelist. So people started digging around in the agents and publishing houses Mm. and everything. So... And that's, you know, I feel so bad for her. Can't a person just write a good book and have people appreciate it for what it is? Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> Let me know if, if, yeah. It, if, yeah. if you guys have figured out how to do that. I'd like to know. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, good job on the revisits, boys and girls. Uh, so what Great do we have job, next? Guys. We're going to talk about a book, right? We're going to talk yep. about Thunderbird by Dorothy Lasky. Oh, um, poems, our, our second episode of Poems. Or we could just take The Hobbit and discuss the songs. Oh, God. That, Break the uh, lights and the teeth it there. That's what we're Baggins hates. <laughs> Fucking dwarves, man. Fucking dwarves. All right, we'll be back shortly. Welcome back, everybody, to Literary Disco. Um, we are going to read, or we already have read, another book of poetry. So, as you guys might remember, I um, I foolishly announced um, in the newspaper, in the LA Times, that I didn't read enough poetry and that I wanted people to tell me about books of poetry to read. And so we read two very good books of poetry a couple months ago, Camille Dungy's book, um, Smith Blue, and Natalie Diaz's When My Brother Was an Aztec. Did I get the title of that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so we decided we had so much fun not knowing what the hell I was talking about that we should do it again. <laughs> and so I asked my, uh, my good friend, Matthew Zapruder, to recommend a book of poetry for me. And he recommended uh, Dorothy Lasky's Thunderbird. Um, Dorothy Lasky is the author of three books of poetry. Um, her first one, Awe, and then her second one, Black Life. She's also done a ton of chapbooks as well. Uh, her poems appeared in all the places where poets, I think, probably want to be, the New Yorker, the Paris Review, the American Poetry Review. Um, she has uh, a rabid and interesting following online. I, I went and looked at all the people that love her. She's all over the place. Um, and I had read one poem of hers before, um, and that was just actually um, about a month and a half ago. I brought a poet out to the MFA program that I direct at UC Riverside named Anthony McCann, and he taught a seminar on um, Dorothy's poem. And I guess she goes by Dottie. I think people call her Dottie. Because I don't know if we're actually pronouncing her name correctly because it's Dorothea, is how it's spelled? Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, he explicated the poem Death and Sylvia Plath, which is in this book, Thunderbird. And I absolutely loved it and was fascinated by the poem about the ideas of death that are um, exist inside of the poem. So we'll talk a little bit about that poem in particular, at least I will. Um, but so this is her, her third book. It's, um, it's, it's received rave reviews everywhere. Um, as usual, I don't really know how to talk about books of poetry. I, I could talk about what moves me and what doesn't move me. So I'll, I'll turn it over first to, to you guys. Tell me what, uh, what your thoughts were. <laughs> <laughs> Silence. I have some very mixed feelings about this book. Well, let me say this. I think a lot of our listeners will love this book. I think mm-hmm. I understand that a lot of people love this book. Um, and I do not. And I'm not quite like settled on why I don't like this book. Um, and we'll have to talk about it more, you know, because I, I don't think it's going to come down to a simple, like, I didn't like it because that. Th- 
that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, um, but well, it it does and it doesn't because with poetry sometimes that is kind of all that matters, you know. And that's that's why I kind of want to. I'm 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 probably going to be pretty critical of this book, but I want to say that I think there's some really admirable things going on here, and I think being critical of this book actually puts me in a difficult position. Um, and I I maybe I can explain why better as we go along with more concrete examples, but. I guess what is what is really cool about this book is its rawness and its honesty and mm-hmm. its immediacy. And those are things that I think a lot of people want more from contemporary poetry and that is missing from a lot of contemporary poetry. And so I think a lot of people that don't read much poetry or that don't like contemporary poetry very much will love this book because they will pick it up and it will read very... She is... She is a an emotional presence, and she is very raw, and she is in your face, and um, I think people will really appreciate that and respond to that, and so I appreciate that, and I think that that is really cool, and it's something that I remember when I was a teenager wishing that I could have could could find more contemporary poets like this, and. So I understand why she's popular. I understand why she's probably needed in in, in the contemporary poetry world because I think um, it's been uh, it's it's too scholarly. I think it's too academic. I think poetry has been very idea driven and intellectual and mm-hmm. clever and ironic. And she is none of those things. She is raw. She's emotional. She is upfront. She is honest. She is immediate. And so, and- so then why why don't you? So those are all the things that make me really quite like this. So why yeah. why doesn't it it Cause strike you? Because that's sophomoric. It's crap. It's something I could write. In, <laughs> it's something I am so not impressed by that. I I, I just this is the problem. <laughs> Right, oh, right. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I I totally disagree. But go. On. I know you do, and that's why. And that's why I have to be careful. And like I said, there is something I do appreciate. But I like it's consciously anti-intellectual, and that's what she's trying to get at. I think, and so I'm I'm I'm. It's admirable, but like I said, it's sophomoric, and it's it feels like somebody with a really good idea. And 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 she's she's sticking with it, and so I have to admire it. But um, but that doesn't mean the same as as good execution. Like I just don't want to read this kind of poetry. Like this is the kind of poetry I wrote when I was sixteen. It's 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 it feels easy to me. It feels okay. easy to me. So let me ask you. Uh, l- let me tell you why I I found it moving. Yeah. So pre- let let me just start with this this wonder this poem that I really love, Death and Sylvia Plath, and I'll. It, I'll read it. By the way, the, love that yeah. poem. I like that one too. There's, so there's four poems that talk, I marked in here. We can here, talk about why yeah, I love this I one. Loved. Yes. Uh, my student in the City College really likes the poems of Sylvia Plath. She is writing her research paper about Lady Lazarus. I like this student. She spends some time leaning over me and telling me how in the poem Plath turns from an object into an entertainer and finally into a demon. Oh, yes, you are right, I tell her. We are pleased. I wonder afterwards, why do young women like Sylvia Plath? Why doesn't everyone? The student tells me that when she was young, she liked Plath. I did too. I did not ride horses. Sylvia Plath rode horses. I don't have a thesis. I don't have a structure. I am a demon. There are blue streaks in the sky. It is spring. I am not you, nor do I want to be. It is 2-21 on 2-21-2010. I am not alive. No, I'm no longer breathing. 
I don't live in this world. I already live in the other one. That poem to me, it, it opens in me, um, well, it, it, does, it does three things for me. It takes me back to that moment of, of epiphany when I first read great literature, that moment. It takes me to that moment also of giving great literature to someone else and them appreciating it, which is, I think, it's part of why we do the show, right? That we want to share mm -hmm. our opinions on great literature. Um, but it's what makes me a professor. It's why I like being a professor. And the third is that idea of her no longer being alive, that her words are her life, and that once she has expressed them, the, that she is gone. All that stuff really, or at least that's how I read it. But it also, I find that the idea of using Sylvia Plath both as a living and dead thing in this is really an interesting thing. And so it, it, it appeals to me on a purely emotional level. And I, you know, I don't, I don't understand necessarily um, why some lines are different shape than other lines and things like that. And I think Dorothy mm -hmm. Lasky is more of a free verse poet anyway, so it might not matter. Mm -hmm. But I love the repetition. I think the repetition is something she does uh, really well throughout the book. Um, and I, I don't know, this, this poem in particular fascinated me when I read it initially about a month ago, and it seems to me the centerpiece of this book as well, that it, it sets forth a lot of the big things that she's talking about, about words and life and being a woman. So I think, so that's really interesting to me, Todd, because you're saying that your entryway into what is now your favorite poem in the book is someone explaining this poem. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. So think about what that means. That means you had a primer to the themes. You had an expert telling you what to look for and what to think about. So I'm, I mean, I got most of what you got out of the poem as well. But for me, I, I fall between you two. There were things in this book that I really, really loved, but I spent too much time struggling against, I feel like struggling against the poet. Of there was every poem, almost every single poem, mentions either that the poet hates writing poetry or that she's angry at the readers or just the fact that it is a poem. It's yeah. largely a book about being a poet. And not yes. even not even that. Not even about being a poet. It's just like just like in that Sylvia Plath poem, you're like three quarters of the way through, you're like, Yeah, teaching, literature, students, Sylvia Plath, I'm with it. And then all of a sudden it's like, here's where I am writing this poem, it all comes back to me writing this poem, mm -hmm. which I understand and like to a degree, but I, I found it frustrating that I was always being pushed away. Well, let me tell you, one of my favorite sections, is, which is a poem exactly what you're talking about, is called Misunderstood. I, I was just, I yeah. just... Uh -huh. It's another very good poem. <laughs> yeah, I really and, like that poem. And I'll just read, she has this, she's talking about, you know, basically the struggle... To communicate, you know, and the struggle mm -hmm. to communicate through poetry. Mm -hmm. That's I feel like that's one of the biggest themes of this book. So here's here's the section that I really like. When I drink a cool glass of water, why do I feel so cool inside in a way that is not representative of the outside world? What is it that when I am feverish, the rest of the world is not hot? What is it about this room that makes me write a poem? And what is not a poem when I am out of it? love that like that yeah, you know that is that, that is a Fantastic. way to take very simple language really and cool ideas about you know the the desire to communicate and the inability to um take inside states and outside states and to to merge those two like when she when she plays with those ideas i was totally on board um and and i i think that in a lot of ways that is her point you know she's kind of 
if I it, like the mental image that I have in my mind is like a woman standing on a street corner, like screaming to me, the reader, and I'm like up in the room reading the book, and I can like <laughs> hear her screaming and like getting really emotional and crying, and I'm like just barely able to hear her because I'm only reading this book, and that that kind of like quality, that emotional desire and need to get to me, um, that struggle is what she's struggling with. And I have to say, that's your job. That's what you're supposed to do as a poet. Don't make that struggle what the poem... Is. like that. If that's the only thing you can write about in poetry that's affecting me, then you're not writing good poetry. You know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, if you're constantly saying, why aren't you listening to me? Why aren't you understanding me? Why don't you feel my feelings? Make me feel your feelings. That's your job. So I, you're supposed to get me to that state. So if the only interesting thing you have to offer me is your frustration with your own emotions and how you can't express them to me, then you're not accomplishing what you should as a writer. See, my, my favorite stuff of hers is the stuff that actually, I think, involves the third person. So, for instance, mm -hmm. Take Care of Yourself, Alice, um, which was my second favorite poem. Uh, my first favorite was the Sylvia Plath one and then Misunderstood in this one. I bet you um, like the dog one, too. I like the dog one. I like the dog one, yeah. Mm -hmm. But Take Care of Yourself, Alice, begins, everything is trauma. Everything takes away from the center. Even the cops, Alice, who I think are there to protect me even though the cops are never there to protect you, even though men are selfish and brutish, and it goes on. Um, I, you know, I found maybe, maybe that's the thing that I responded to more in this book is when she's talking about other people's experience or when she's interpreting other people's experience, and the dog poem is the same way, um, that I, you know, I, I found it more resonant because I, the, the poems where she talks more specifically about being a poet and being a writer, those are the ones where my attention waned for sure. Um, or when, you know, I, I started to, in my head, start to say, okay, here comes, here comes me using poet voice in my head because mm -hmm. the word mother and father show up a lot. Um, so, you know, that, that's, I think, the challenge for me as a reader is that, you know, I, I have to find a story. And we talked about this last time we talked about the book's poetry is that I much more favor narrative poetry versus just... Sure. Um, you know, more standard poetry. So the, the, the works here that I feel that I can really grab onto are the ones that invariably make a scene versus try to explicate an emotion. Yeah, but I think, I mean, I, I agree with Ryder. It's, there's, they're very emotional poems. I felt that they were so much more emotional almost than, the, um, than Camille Dungy's book, which I also, which I love, love, love. But it's like, one thing we haven't talked about yet is this really clean and hard style, which I would say I do not like. I'm a person who enjoys punctuation. So I feel like you guys, even reading them aloud, reading sections aloud, are so different than my experience of just reading this poem quietly by myself. Um, so I, here's a section that I marked that I thought was very um, indicative of her style. So this is just one stanza within a very long poem, Ugly Feelings. When the toad died, the girl died, then I died. That's the story. I'm dead. That's <sighs> See, that is, that is that is <laughs> so That's yeah. Really hard. <laughs> it's hard to it, it immediately creates a distance, you know, and I, I'm with Ryder. I, I don't feel as viscerally against it as Ryder, but I feel that <laughs> It would be impossible for you let to me, feel as viscerally me, against me, it as Ryder. Feel, <laughs> can I read very, another poem I, that to me feels the same way? 
It's titled, I Want to Be Dead. All of you are so boring. You are living, eating, breathing, pissing, waiting to know when it will happen. I am already dead. I want to be dead. I am already dead. I am already fucking words. Like, I just roll my eyes. I can't see. I love that poem. I absolutely love that poem. I'm surprised you love it, Ted. There's nothing being said. What is being said? I don't understand. Um, Well, there's the desire to be dead. um, The feeling of nothingness. (laughs) Right. But there's that that bit in the middle. Middle-aged men are the devils I shall meet when I'm dead. In this life, I was a middle-aged, middle-class, middle-of-the-road woman. Middle men are the exercise demons of my death. I'm like, wow, that's... This is this is a woman uh, that's, extolling. That's just telling me that though. Like, but show I, me that. I, I, but like, make me how, draw me how into you, a scene how do you or a show world. Being or... a middle-aged, middle-class, middle-of-the-road woman in that's the your job. That's what a poem does. But I think Camille Dungy. Do I think actually, staying... middle-class, middle-of-the-road woman is exactly what Camille Dungy accomplished in a lot of her poem. Like, just telling me, I am this. I want to be dead. That's not. To me, that is the least. That is. It's a direct address type of poetry that I think. Like I was saying, I think it, it, it feels fresh again because we have, haven't had a popular poet do this and pull this off. But to me, that's like song lyrics. That's not poetry. What, like po- what I think there's, I think there's a song lyric-esque quality to some of this. I mean, it, right. it, it, you, you can see some of this as it were. If it were a song, you could see it. But I think the next bit, what could be more dramatic than the last breath? This breath. No, that one. No, what do I make of it? I, you know, that image of, that last breath that you took could be your last breath at any given moment, I think, to me, is a very powerful evocation in this. I think she, I, I like, once, it's just it's just like trying to not be aware of your tongue after someone says, hey, think about your tongue. And then all of a sudden, you've got a tongue in your mouth. And, oh, my God, I can't believe I have this thing wiggling around in my mouth. Once you think about breath. Thanks for that. Now I'm doing it. You're welcome. Yeah. We think about, this could be my last breath. No, this one. No, this one. What could be more dramatic than that? All right. That, I, well, I, I, I get that. It's great yeah. that it worked for you. I mean, I just, to me, that is like the, I, I guess I just feel like that's the simplest, you know, saying I love you is is a very clear, simple, important thing to say, right? I love you. But then. I love you too, Ryder. When you can I mean, say I love you. This is a little you. weird now because yeah. we're on the air, but I mean, I've always, I've always felt the bond that we had was very strong. But when you can say I love you in a very interesting, <laughs> unique way, and when you can make somebody feel that you love them through the, you know, a, a, a really interesting expression or the, the thing that you said that they didn't expect when you rejuvenated the very word love by the way you used it in a sentence that they didn't expect it, that's the point of poetry to me. It's not just to say I love you, I hate you, I want to die, I feel like this, sometimes I think about this. But doesn't she have a poem that actually does explicate love? Hold on. But, but you see what I'm saying? Like, it's yes. just this, like... I see what you're saying. It, to me, that is, like, first level. It's first level. It's first thought. It's impulsive. It feel like she wrote most of these poems in 30 seconds to... You know, I think there's not there's not a level of craft that I appreciate in poetry. I, I know exactly what you're saying, Ryder, but I don't think there's no craft. I think it's a craft that intentionally creates a hard distance, perhaps in an attempt to be universal. You know what I mean? Camille Dungy or poets like that are, you know, they're bringing you into rich detail, which means they can only be speaking of their life. And that creates its own kind of distance where maybe you don't know those references or you don't know those details. This kind of writing makes such broad statements that it is overwhelming, at least for me, to try to connect with them, especially when the themes are death, love, right. and being a writer. Yeah. Those are 
huge, huge themes to to dig exactly. into over and over. So I, I see what you're saying. I just don't think that that means there's no craft. I think there's an intentional anger. But let's talk about the type of imagery that she always uses, right? I mean, we can pretty much break it down to like five words. She's always birds? talking about birds. <laughs> well, the book and is she called Thunderbird, yeah. Red, red bird, brother bird. She mm-hmm. uses corpses. Yeah. She uses planes. the sun. Mm-hmm. She uses planes. Um, demons. Demons and devils and snakes. And to me, okay, I don't mind that that's the predictable imagery, but that's literally not just the imagery. That's the only words she uses to describe those images. So she doesn't try to evoke those images in any other way other than snake plane, corpse, sun. I mean, she literally just says them. And to me, it's like, okay, you know, you know that line in T.S. Eliot's uh, Alfred, is it, is it in Proof Rock, where he, he never says the word cat, but he's able to evoke the feeling of a cat by, by just the way he describes catness. And, and you, 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 oh, I just made a reference to Hunger Games. Yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, I love that part in Proof Rock where, where Catness shoots that. I, I, think our listener, I think some of our listeners will know what I'm talking about. I, I wish I had it in front of me. But, but it's, a, it's a wonderful passage. And to me, it's always been a really clear, uh, you know, uh, use a poetic technique where it's like he doesn't have to say the word cat but you have a cat in your head and he's actually describing the fog but you know there, there it's it's a way of of uh of working a, with language um to to um communicate without being this just solid direct and basic and i understand that solid direct and basic is obviously her choice and to not be ironic to not be clever to not be full of craft and that's clearly what's appealing about her stuff to a lot of people. Let me ask you about, you guys, about a different poem. Because um, this is one that um, I liked, and then I began to wonder about whether, how much I did like it. Um, and that is To Be the Thing, um, which uh, begins, To be the name uttered, but not to have the burden to be. To be the name said, but not heard. To not breathe anymore. To be the thing, to be the thing being breathed. To not be about to die, to be already dead, to not have a, to not have to disappoint, to not have the burden of being late or punctual. So it sort of goes on for a while about, um, you know, to not be these certain things. And and I like that is to be dead. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I liked that. And then, um, and this is how I feel sometimes in long poems. And this is a, a fairly long poem. It's uh, it's three pages long. Where I start off feeling one way about the emotion being uh, put on the page. And here, you know, I, I liked to, the, the idea of, of explicating a negative, to not be X, to not be Y. Um, and then I, I sort of lose my ability to to not be aware that I'm in a poem. Do you guys know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. at some point uh, the process is, oh, I'm just, I'm reading a poem and I'm not, yes. I'm not in the emotion. And that's, that I think is yes. my challenge with a poem like this and a challenge with some of the longer poems in this uh, book in general. I have that challenge as well. I mean, I I think it's to make the rest of the world drop away. I think that's very difficult for poems to have that effect on me personally. I don't know if it's everybody or not, but I feel like I'm always aware of reading poetry and the exact same idea would feel more natural to me and more less distracting in prose form. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And specifically in this poem, you know, I was really engaged by the to not be um, idea because, you know, it 
I think a lot of times as human beings, we're ruled by the things that we've become, you know, and it might not be the things that other people think of us, but it's, it's the things that in our own anxiety or whatever we think of as ourselves. And, and to have someone say to not be this and to not be that and to not be this, I, you know, that seems to me, and this is something that writer said at the beginning, it's very bare, it's very revealing. And so a poem like that, it really grabs a hold of me because I, I have that, that emotional um, feeling that I feel like I'm getting my $30 copay um, from, from reading that poem. That I, oh, yeah, I don't have to go to therapy this month. I've, I've paid it off reading this poem. So if my reaction to this book is so much different than writers, and when writer and I typically have similar reactions to some things, is that mm -hmm. I find a lot of reading poetry a cathartic experience that I don't necessarily have when reading fiction. Mm -hmm. um, that, wow, that's and, amazing. And that me. might be from simply not reading a lot of poetry over the course of my life. Um, yeah. So, you know, and it's something I was thinking about while reading this, and something I've, I thought about while reading the last two books of poetry we've had. Or, or I mentioned my friend Matthew Zapruder, who recommended this book. And Matthew, I should also note, um, his is one of the editors and founders of Wave Books, which published this book. So, all biases being known there. Um, but you know, when I read Matthew Zapruder's poems. I, you know, I feel like he's writing about parts of my own life. And I don't necessarily feel that Dorothy Lasky's writing about portions of my life, but she's hitting emotions that I can really get with, as the kids say. Well, that's great. I mean, that's kind of the point, right? <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that is that's the great. Point. That's you, the whole point of art. So, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you um, have achieved art status. <laughs> I'm going to get a shirt that says you have achieved art status with a big star on it. <laughs> Walk around the mall yeah. on it. See if people think, notice me. I don't know. It's just maybe poetry has less distractions in a way so that we either it either resonates with us or it doesn't. I feel like there's less chance to say like, oh, yeah, to go back to our earlier discussion, like, I'm interested in the story about Hermaphrodite, but completely ignoring that I hated the prose quality or structure or whatever, <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, and I didn't, but as an example, you know, you can have that huge range of, of reactions in fiction where even if you like just one thing, you can still say, I love that book, even if you return to it later and you don't. Poetry in its rawness and its shortness i think there's very little middle ground of whether it resonates with you or it doesn't we should um by the way uh, since we made a joke of it earlier there uh there's a poem about uh hippies um that we should we should at least address <laughs> which by one? the way i also love that poem that so i do well, like well, this poem a lot like i like weird ass hippies yeah. <laughs> um and you know part of the reason why is it felt like a poem from a different collection and I think there's part, I, I, I'm going to have to look up her, her other stuff because I'm curious as to how much of this is, the, the, the things that I didn't like about this were a very conscious choice within this collection. Mm -hmm. Dorothy Alasky was born in 1978, and um, so she's my age, she's a year older than me. And, um, and I think that when I was a teenager and when I started writing poetry, I did feel like I was reacting against a sense that poetry was a closed scholarly experience that I didn't have access to. And mm. there was, there was a, there was a, um, a, a sense of manifesto in the poems I was writing. Why I have such mixed feelings about it is because I understand that impulse. And I understand that actually we might kind of need that. 
um, because that that's like what the Beat Generation did in their time. You know, they cut through the bullshit with a lot of direct writing that probably would have considered simplistic and anti-intellectual in their time. Now, I'm not probably, it was considered anti-intellectual at the time. But now, you know, there's a whole poetry tradition that has developed out of that. And so I think that, you know, that's, that's part of what I'm wrestling with is what side of this uh, generational divide am I falling on as a reader now? Because why am I reacting so negatively to the things that, for instance, I felt in a need for when I started writing poetry? It's interesting. You know, I agree. I, this Reading this, <laughs> I think this is partially what you're saying, but I just, it kind of made me feel old. <laughs> like, like, okay, I get what, like, I get what you're doing. But I just want to read something that really hits me personally. You know what I mean? Well, that's the thing. It's like, it's like these huge abstractions, right? I don't want to think about what right? you're doing. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't want to consider... I mean, no, I do want to consider it. I am considering. But I don't want to, you know... I don't want to take time to acknowledge that you're doing it. I just want you to do it. That was yes. my feeling. Mm. Yeah. But and I still liked it. But I still felt that she was making me... Appre- like the poems demand to be appreciated quite literally right um so are you speaking like in the case of like the poem is it murder which begins what is murder that's a very interesting poem to write and to consider versus if if that was not in there would yes, it exactly. change the way you feel about that poem yes okay yep Ex- think about or explain or whatever what murder is rather than immediately say this is going to be interesting <laughs> You know? Here's something you're going to enjoy. I don't know if this is true, but I don't feel like you can read a book of poetry just in one sitting. Just like, you know, that sort of the same feeling I had about the graphic novels we read uh, last episode, or that you were talking about, Julia, about going back and appreciating stuff, mm-hmm. is that, you know, if I had sped through this book, I don't think it would have had the effect on me, because I'd be like, all right, I gotta get to the end, I gotta get to the end. But I took the time to linger, um, and I think mm-hmm. there is mm-hmm. some value in that like you said, looking at the piece of art in Goliath mm-hmm. in our last episode, right. for me, it was looking at the individual poems, not as a collection. I didn't really think of it, how, how do these poems connect with one another, which is different than the last two books we read, which are very clearly delineated through their connections, and, and you really need to read the all of it to get the, the bigger imagery. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was able to read this in more of a singular way, and I think, you know, that, that might have also played a role in... Uh, my affection for it. Or it just might be that I liked it. Sometimes I like things and sometimes I don't like things. Like sometimes I don't like tomatoes. But I like sun-dried tomatoes. That's the really weird thing. You have opposite. achieved art. Again. You don't like sun-dried tomatoes, but you like real tomatoes, Ryder? Yes, but I also don't like whole real tomatoes. Like the idea of no. biting into a... Fr- Ugh, that's uh, oh, disgusting. Right. But even slices is kind of too intense sometimes. But like, like tomato sauce or I like tomato sauce. in tomato sauce. Yes, yeah. not a problem. Awesome. Stewed what the tomatoes. hell is wrong with you guys? There's nothing better than biting into a really fresh good tomato. My so nana gross. used to say, nothing goes better on a sandwich than tomato. And I'd always say, what if you don't like the way a tomato tastes? And she'd say, that's just crazy. And then she'd put a fucking tomato on my sandwich. I have to peel the fucking thing off. And now she's dead. <laughs> she wants to be dead. And I think that ties in nicely to Dorothy Lasky's <laughs> Thunderbird. She was already dead to me when she put the uh, tomato on. So anyway, uh, that was Dorothy Lasky's Thunderbird, available from Wave Books. It's her third book, as we said. Um, I liked it. Julia was somewhere in the middle. And Ryder would like to see it uh, set on fire. So that's nice. <laughs> Thank you.
And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss A River Runs Through It, both the novella by Norman McLean and the film by Robert Redford. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter, at literary disco. Thanks for listening. Magnolia.